The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is Galatians 2, 6-10. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised." Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, John. Well, some of you may know that uh, we actually just moved into a new building, um, our offices, and uh, just right around the corner to WeWork. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know if you've been in a WeWork before. Uh, there are three of them. I think there's a fourth one even opening in Nashville, which I just heard about. Um, and you may have seen WeWork in the news lately because even in the last couple of months, uh, even since we moved in, it's been, they've been having layoffs and we don't know if we will be working in WeWork uh, soon, <laughs> but I hope we are. Um, <clears throat> I'm enjoying the free coffee and beer that they give us all the time. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, I was unpacking all my books, which I get make, made fun of. Uh, for all the books that I have in my office and, you know, they have glass walls and thankfully we have two of, uh, two of our walls are not so I can stack them up high and the rest of the people in the office just have to deal. But I have, <clears throat> as I was unpacking, looking at all these uh, books that I've really enjoyed over the years and I love philosophy, I love discussing and questions and if you know anything about philosophy, right, it's, it's about asking good questions, it's about observing and those kind of things and I have a I have an old book called Does the Center Hold? Uh, does it hold, right? Does the center, middle, hold? And that's kind of the question of philosophy, right? Is what is there that holds? What is fluctuating? There's an ancient uh, philosopher named Heraclitus, one of the first you know, ever known, who um, just like many philosophers was just an observer in nature and asked many questions. And what he did was step into a river. This is what he, to understand, he stepped into a river. So imagine doing this down at the Cumberland, stepping into a river and he just sat there for a while and he just thought about things, right? That's very, very philosophical. And what he noticed, when he realized that it, the river continued to change. He, he came up with a phrase essentially that you never step into the same river twice. In other words, that he was observing not only in the river, but everything around him consistently changed. It was always moving, always changing. And this is not a far cry from us. We're seeing it. We live in a city right now, whether uh, we want to admit it or not, that everywhere we turn, there's a crane, right? There's change going on around us. Uh, there was recently just an argument that broke out uh, when Fido, the beloved Fido that we know, um, that's over here in Hillsborough Village, the building next to it collapsed into Fido and messed it all up. And there was a big war of the people in Fido and the people outside saying, hey, we don't want this. This change is messing up our building. <laughs> it's messing with us. Uh, even more so, some of the philosophers of our day, particularly the boss, Bruce Springsteen, said it well. 
One of my favorite songs that I think speaks of my own life. He said this, now I think I'm going to down to the well tonight and I'm going to drink till I get my fill. And I hope when I get old, I don't sit around thinking about it, but I probably will. Yeah, just sitting back trying to recapture a little of the glory of while time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days. Glory days while they'll pass you by. Glory days in the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days, glory days. You know, as much as uh, you think about those things, the things that are constantly changing, we are constantly wanting something to remain, right? And there's another even more famous philosopher who said this, and as many philosophies do, they bounce back and forth, right? You know, as one person says, everything changes. The other next philosopher says, well, nothing changes. Everything is still the same. But Aristotle, I think, said it beautifully. He took both of those and he said, look, with everything that's moving around, there has to be what's called, as much as we desire, as much as we see in life, there has to be what's called an unmoved mover. There has to be one that's fixed. There has to be something or someone that actually is in the center and it holds. And as we look at this passage, we're actually talking about something really important. Something that I think is so ingrained and embedded to the argument that's written to the Galatian church that it's so run in them and so run in us that we need to see it in order to understand what does it really mean to have a relationship with God and a relationship with others and everything around us. It's the fact that do we understand that our relationship with God is fixed and that the methods, the way that we live, the, the way that we practice our faith is it becomes flexible. <clears throat> it wraps around whatever we're in. So that, <clears throat> meaning our relationship to the Lord oftentimes can look flexible. Sometimes, isn't, isn't it so? You wake up in the morning, you don't feel close to God. I mean, maybe you're even here now and I don't know what background some of you may be coming from. Maybe you're coming in new to the church. Maybe it's a, from a background of being cynical and burned by it. And maybe looking at this kind of thing in this relationship to God is flexible. It's like, eh, but everything else in life feels fixed. Maybe your work, what you have to do. I mean, just even thinking about getting up in the morning, what you do next, right? That feels more fixed than maybe your relationship with God. But see, what Paul is getting at in this letter that he wrote in the 40s, 50s, he was writing to a church that was struggling with this idea. They were struggling with the fact that Paul went through, planted a church. He said, what is fixed is your relationship to God. But people were coming in behind him and saying, you know what? Paul was okay. I mean, it's fine that he started this church and it's okay. But he has kind of an online apostleship, right? His is not really the degree that we all have. You need a little something extra. You need a little something more. You need, to, you need to take on these rituals. You need to have this in place. You need to have this formula that works. And what became of that, as you can see, is instead of their relationship with God being what was in the middle, what held, <clears throat> it became what they could do for God. It became what they could do for others. And Paul is fighting against that vehemently. And that's what we're looking at this morning. That's what this passage is. It looks, we're actually taking, it's almost like we're jumping in midway of a conversation because he's been having this argument for the last chapter and now two. (laughs) But you're seeing this argument in the middle and now we're seeing the biggest piece of it is 
what holds? Does the center hold is what Paul wants us to know. And here are the two things I think he draws out for us. One is that we have a fixed theology. That means we have a fixed relationship with God. Theology, we use that word, but it really means what is your relationship with God like? We're all theologians. Everybody in this room is. Every day you walk out of here and you make decisions based on who is God? What is he like? What, does he th- what do you think of him? God wants you to know who he is, right? But we also have a flexible methodology. It means that when you leave here, not every one of us are going back to the same house, job, family, friends. That the gospel is the same. The good news of Jesus, that that story is fixed. Your relationship with God is fixed. But how it's applied can sometimes look different. And that's okay. But what, hap- what has happened often is we've switched that. We've switched God's relationship being the one that's in the center with everything else, the formula that we're trying to crack for our lives, and it throws us off. So let's look at this. Let's dive in. Let's, let's talk more about this, this debate that's going on. And it starts at the beginning, verse 6. Again, we're jumping in as from those who seem to be influential. That is apostles. These are like influential are the big names, right? He draws them out. Peter, he says later on, he's trying to kind of hold back. He's layering his argument. Peter, James, um, and John. Cephas is actually another, another name for Peter. And what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to entrusted the gospel to the circumcised. You see, he's arguing with them this, that everyone is saying, okay, Paul, maybe you had this vision. Maybe Jesus came to you, right? And maybe you're right. Because what is an apostle? An apostle is this. Here's the biblical definition of what an apostle is. An apostle is someone who followed Jesus in their ministry and saw Jesus resurrected. And Paul qualifies for those. But because he came in later, because he wasn't Peter or someone else, like James or John, they're saying, "Eh, he's not as big a deal. That's why he's using this language of influential. He's not demeaning Peter, James, and John. He's actually saying, I'm not below them. I'm equal to them, not based on me, but on what God has done. And so he's arguing, but they're saying, no, 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 no. Peter is better. Peter's the one we need to follow. And, And they're making qualifications. And notice the language influential. Paul is trying to draw out the argument, and here it is, that influence is what matters. That what works is being influential. Notice he even says this in verse eight. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, that means the Jewish culture, worked also through me, uh, through me for mine to the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. He's using the word worked. He's saying influence, hey, y'all think it's through influence. You think it's through power, through these things. And I think in our idea of that, it is very true. It's what is influential? Influential, if we said that today, the word can be even translated as what's cool. <laughs> what's, kind of the, what's kind of the thing right now that keeps us going? What, what is the, the thing that fits in our formula that makes our life run? And what makes it work? And Paul's trying to draw that out. He's trying to say, well, what, what do you think is influential? See, it, for us, I think, and I read this article some time ago, but it's a good one. It's, it talks about the, um, the towards a universal theory of cool, <laughs> this article. It's about what, what makes something cool? What makes something, because in our idea of influence, cool can be that. It doesn't just mean culturally cool. It can mean a lot of different things. Listen to what they say. 
Where the definition of cool, iconoclastic, legitimate, and bounded runs into trouble is the concept of success, and that's where cool kind of moves in. Some people who break rules but don't achieve success are seen as losers or failures. But for others in the business world, we could take Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, and others, it's precisely their thrilling success more than their bounded autonomy that makes the real source of their coolness. They accomplished something. They could say that they did it. Some of this even draws out what is cool. It's cool humor, some humor that puts you in superiority. Oftentimes, cool is attached to an influence in our culture and society. And think about what runs so much of our influence and what we fix our lives on, that method, is what brings us success. It's what puts us in the middle. It allows us to be influential or others to be influential based on a certain criteria that fits our formula. And that's what he's getting at. You see, Paul's really smart here. He's drawing out the fact that these guys are coming in and wanting to tell everyone in the church, if you have the right formula, then you can be influential. If you work just this right, it'll fit all together. All the pieces will work. But even if you look at this, and I even saw another article talking about why companies, why have businesses, certain businesses lost their way? If you look at all of them, there are countless of them. I mean, there's one from CNBC that talks about so many say this, but listen to what this, this one article said. Got to the heart of it. It said that whatever the cause, the challenges were the same. Once the, they lose shoppers' interests or any other interests, it can be ex- extremely hard to get it back. It really comes back to what is your reason for being rather than what are you trying to sell? What, what product, how are you trying to be influential in the moment? See, even in business, it's trying, what is the center? What is your reason for being? What, is the, what does it mean to be in the center? The word here, worked, is what's key. When he says in verse eight, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to the Gentiles. You see the difference is the work is in a, a Greek word meaning in ergo. It means someone else did the work. Paul is referring to the fact that it wasn't Paul doing the work. If it was simply Paul coming in saying, look at my work, look what I've done, in terms of my work, it would be a challenge. Who's, cool? Who's more influential, Peter or me? But he uses a word that we wouldn't see right away. He, it's called energo. It means someone else. The same one who was working with Peter is working with Paul. It puts the emphasis elsewhere. Here, here's what it gets to. It gets to the heart of where you and I want to make variables of our life. And if we just get that one thing that fits, it will make it all work. It's one of those things where we look at, maybe some of you in this room have children and you think, if I just read the right book, if I just did the right things, my child will turn out this way or would have turned out this way. I mean, somebody just gave me a stack of books the other day of parenting. I'm like, gosh, I'm never gonna read those things. I mean, it's all over the place. What are the other places that you could think of in a million ways? The moments that we're chasing between two jobs. We're in the existing one or we're in another one or whatever it is, we're holding them up, we're looking at what is. 
Look, how do we make these decisions? Is God at work or are we the ones putting together our life? Is the sinner hold because we are holding it together or something else? This is so ingrained in us because when we leave these doors and we wake up tomorrow morning and we go about our whatever it is, life that we're living, there is something that you and I look down the corridor and say, if I get this right today, tomorrow, and the next day, the formula of my life will fit together and it will work. And still many of us come here and feel as though our relationship with God, uh, and maybe we even use that formula for God. Maybe you even come and you look at this table, you look at the songs we play, the guy up here speaking again for you for a Sunday morning and you think, gosh, if I have all these pieces, my relationship with God is just right. Where does the work happen? Is it all about us? Are we trying so hard to hold the sinner or does God? And that's what Paul is appealing to with these people. He's saying, look, your faith, your relationship to God has to be fixed beyond what you think you can hold. Because you're right, there are cranes all around you. And there are kids going off to college. And your job's gonna stink. <laughs> and your life's gonna be hard. I was just talking to somebody this morning who had a car, had a break, had a car break down and have to buy another one. Life is constantly doing that. And even when we get something new and we feel like, yes, we have something new, it, it wears down. Where do we show this? We show it, and how do you do it? And notice what he's talking about. He talks about the uncircumcised and the circumcised. And here's the big example. He's saying to all of these people, he's saying, how do I bring it to a group, the circumcised, which is a ritual for Jewish people, and the uncircumcised, basically everybody else, Gentiles, that would be us. How do we bring the gospel to them? How do we be a faithful presence instead of just adding more method? Because what this passage is saying is we, in order to be faithful in our presence to people, we have to understand that God is fixed and we are not. If you have a fixed theology, a fixed relationship with him, then you can be a faithful presence to those around you. You can be a faithful witness to those who are in places. And I know some of that's like, ooh, some of you may think witness, that word is like, ooh. But you're doing it every day. Did you know you're all theologians? You're constantly emanating this relationship. The question isn't whether you have a relationship with God. It is, where does that sit? And how do you be a faithful presence? Here's, here's a good example of this. I was watching College Game Day uh, a few weeks ago, College Game Day. So I said this in the first service, by the way, about College Game Day, and I got like blank stares. Please tell me. Some of you at least know what College Game Day is. Thank you. Yes. So I was watching it a few weeks ago, and, and I don't know if you know Kirk Herbstreet, who is like, I'd love to be best friends with. He is the face of College Game Day. He was in Memphis, Tennessee for the SMU Memphis game. So SMU is undefeated at the at the time, Southern Methodist University in Dallas against Memphis, Memphis Tigers, if you don't know. And so College Game Day goes there, and what they do is if you're not, not familiar with College Game Day, they basically take a huge trailer and a bunch of noise, and they put it in the city and say, there's going to be a big game. You know, that's kind of what it is, if you want a simplified version. Well, they go to Beale Street, 
And they set up in Beale Street, and man, it is this big time party. And there they are, all lined up on the stage, as they always do in every city, and Kirk Herb Street is there, and Kirk says, as he does, he's talking about the games and it, it, with you know, all the other people lined up, and at one point, and I can't remember if he said it or someone else said it about him, that he lived in Nashville. And you would have thought they were shutting down College Game Day. I mean, he, the reign of boos, boo. I mean, they just started booing him just because he was associated and lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Because I guess, and I'm, you know, I'm picking up on this as I go, you know, I've been here 15 years and I'm still learning. Memphis and Nashville have some sort of a rivalry. Some of you Memphis people know that. And so like they, just because he moved here from Ohio, oh, you got a major, this is the face of college game day and they're booing him on college game day. Um, he brought this, it's like, so ironic, he brought this whole thing to your town people and now you're booing him, you know. Um, but, but they're booing him, I mean, think about this. Here's the tension that's being sat in here. That this is the, the ultimate deal, the ultimate, the ultimate thing that's being brought. And just because they're uncircumcised or circumcised, you could see that there could be this massive polarization. What Paul is trying to say is the work is the same because God is working. It doesn't matter what city it's in. It doesn't matter who it is. It's a faithful presence of God working in it. Many of you live in a million different neighborhoods in Nashville. Some of you live in Sylvan Park or the Nations, East Nashville. The beauty of our church is we're an eclectic body of people. Woodbine, Green Hills, Hillsborough Village, 12 South, Belmont. Look, here's the question is when you're in those neighborhoods, what does it look like for you to live out just a simple, faithful presence in the, your places you work, live, and play of this fixed theology? Or does it look more like when you go into those neighborhoods, you're using that neighborhood. You're, it's more of a fixed methodology of how, how, do, I, how do I care for the, all these things? And it can exhaust us. The church is bound, and what it means, and even this title of the church without walls means the church moves out of here because it's not just for here. It's for out there, and it exists only, and it doesn't fade away only if that relationship with God is fixed. But if everything else is fixed and God isn't, then how else are we gonna feel faithful? It means like even this, when those of you in here who are uh, maybe in the, med, let's take a, an industry of the medical community that just surrounds us. If you're in that community, how are you just a faithful presence of the fixed gospel, the good news in those places? Maybe it's just being consistent. Maybe it's those late nights of being there. Maybe it's all of those times where it just feels like those 12-hour shifts just run. And are you faithful with those around you to care for them, to just show them that what's fixed is God's work and who he is rather than just all of that job running you? Don't you know that feeling? I hate that feeling. When you finish a day or a week and you feel like instead of you running your week, the week ran you, feels more often than not. And that is the that is what's in the water for us. But what he's talking about is deeper. It is that fixed relationship. And then he even goes on to say this. He says, and if I, if I was sitting with Paul and I was just having coffee with him, and if, you, if, if you've heard of Paul's, uh, some of even what we've 
talked about in Galatians, if you're sitting with Paul and you, you heard his story about how he just grew up, you know, his, his part of his story is he was just finding churches and finding Christians hiding out and not only murdering them, but arresting them, separating families, putting people to death, putting people in jail. This is his story. And now he's talking about these things and there's a little bit of a, of a nuanced word here that he says, and you could miss it easily. He said in verse nine, and when James and Peter, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, that is, these great people of the faith, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they circumcised. It is so easy to miss something like this in our kind of, I don't know, maybe religious talk. But if I was sitting with Paul and I had just heard him talk about his story, just like you would anybody, and he drops this line of perceive the grace given to me, that he's saying that these people who are considered the pillars of the faith recognize that God's grace is set on this guy, that he realizes that it is what's fixed is not just God's work, but his grace, his charis, his charity, that it was undeserved care, his undeserved love. And isn't it, let's get to the real heart of it. Isn't it what we make every formula for to try and make sure that we can hold on to love? Like, isn't that what we really are doing in every sphere of what we have an influence? Is to really try and make the variable fit where we feel as though we are loved. That it is undeserved love on us. And that is it. Imagine if Paul said this differently. Imagine if he said it like what I often do. And I, I, I have four, I, I, I wouldn't even, I, I thought of this. And it really is something I, I haven't said in a while, but in my um, house, are four letters when I was born. And on two of those letters when I was born, my dad wrote to Tom Landry of the Dallas Cowboys and Daryl Royal, who was the head coach at University of Texas at the time. And they both wrote back. Here's what's amazing. And when I was little, he had that framed. And it's, it's actually really cool. But those letters remind me of a lot of things in my life. They remind me of how I have existed so often with a formula of trying to get to those kind of places in my life. To, to make myself loved by using athletics, to connect to whether it's my family or others through certain things. And those letters have written into my soul this idea that if you have this right combination and if it works out for you, you will be loved. But do you see the difference here in what Paul is saying is this. He is saying if you go that route, if you go the fixed methodology over the fixed theology of God's relationship to you, you will look for it everywhere and you will never be satisfied by it. You will never reach the bottom of it. And he even uses this at the very end to say, 
as an example. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There was a famine in the land. And if you wanna know uh, just an, a reference to that, that there was a famine of how do we actually supply the poor with generosity? We see this in our lives. We're entering into Thanksgiving and Christmas where it's like we need to give and give and give and have generous hearts. How do we actually see the needs, social needs of our city, our life, our world, and give to it without feeling like it's compromising us? That we either feel really good or really bad. Look, this is the time of year where I know it's about to happen. Somewhere between Thanksgiving and New Year's where I get in line at Starbucks, you may have had this happen, and you order a drink and you get to the drive-thru and right when you pull up, they say, hey, the person in front of you bought your drink for you. And you're like, that is amazing. And then all of a sudden it clicks for you. Wait, who's behind me? And you kind of look in the rear view to see how many people are sitting in the car behind you. And then you kind of like are tempted to ask the barista, hey, I'd love to do, what's going on with the car behind me? Are they, they already paid? You know, of course they haven't paid. You know, like there's that whole kind of tug in your heart of who you are generously. Like that is the reality. But if we come from a place where we know that God has come in flesh, in person, that he thought it worthwhile not to send a word that you need to be generous people. But every time the poor comes up, what does Paul do? He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say these people are need. He doesn't say what's wrong. He says, think about the one who came, who gave up all his riches, became poor so that those who are poor would become rich. He doesn't throw a number out. He doesn't count how many people in the car. He says, this is what grace is. If you wanna address the realities of what's going on in the world around you, if you wanna have a fixed theology that impacts the methodology of your whole life, you have to do it through this one. Otherwise, you will look to solve poverty, you will look to solve work, you will look to solve conflict in every way through your own efforts and variables. And you will be exhausted. And you will be left bitter. And you might even look at a table like this and think, I'm not good enough to come to a table like this because my method doesn't work. None of the variables I've tried have worked in my whole life. (laughs) Praise be to God. Celebrate the fact that the way that you come to this table is because it is fixed. Nothing about you coming to this table is gonna change it. It's not gonna change it. You can't bring enough shame. You can't bring, you can't overwhelm his grace with your badness and you can't underwhelm it with your goodness. It is fixed because it's come in the person and work of someone else. If you wanna be a good worker, a good friend, a good spouse, this is where it begins, in a fixed place of relationship with Jesus through his body and blood. We're gonna stand and we're gonna read together.